Hello, and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by Judy Eichels, who has over five decades of experience accompanying her Foreign Service husband, Larry, to many Foreign Service postings abroad. Judy also worked as a volunteer, as a training instructor at the Overseas Briefing Center, and as a longtime employee in the Family Liaison Office, FLO, and HR in the State Department, with a focus on employment for Foreign Service family members. Welcome, Judy. We are so glad to have you here to share your experiences and knowledge. Happy to be here, Bonnie. Thank you so much. So you were born in Dallas in the mid-1940s. Tell us about your family and what it was like growing up in the 40s and 50s in Texas. Well, Bonnie, being on the cutting edge of the baby boom generation was crowded from the start. There were so many babies born at Florence Nightingale Hospital in Dallas. They had run out of pink beads to make ID bracelets for baby girls. So I came home decked out in blue beads into a household that included my grandparents and one great-grandmother. My father had been killed in World War II. As I was growing up, I had two grandfathers involved in the construction business, one building homes, mostly financed by veterans' benefits afforded to many following the war, and a grandfather who built schools for the Dallas Independent School District, trying in vain to keep up with the burgeoning school population. When you meet new people, they usually ask two questions right off the bat. Where are you from and what do you do? Both questions are central to the Foreign Service family. I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute. Dallas was a good place to grow up and go to school, but as soon as we joined the Foreign Service, I found it was a hard place to be from. By the time I left in the late 60s, the Kennedy assassination was still too close in the rearview mirror, and the reality of growing up in the segregated South was a life lesson that caused deep reflection and change. So I avoided saying I was from Dallas. Being from Texas, Texas seemed hard enough, but my accent would not let me fudge about this anyway. What about your college days at the University of Texas? How did you decide on studying English, Spanish, and education? Were you planning to use your Spanish language to work abroad? I majored in subjects that both interested me and which I thought I could use toward employment. In the 1960s, women, although beginning to break barriers in many fields, still looked at the more traditional occupations, teaching being one example. How did you meet your husband, Larry? Larry and I were introduced by mutual friends. We went on a blind date in September of 1965 to a football game, of course. We were in Texas, after all. Our falling in love and courtship was on a fast track from the start. We really fell in love. Our decision to marry less than a year later was directly influenced by Larry's taking and passing the Foreign Service entrance exam and then the oral exam in early 1966. A graduate of Southern Methodist University in Dallas, he was finishing his master's degree in journalism and public affairs at the University of Texas when USIA, the United States Information Agency, offered him a job. So you married Larry right after college graduation in 1966, and he joined USIA as public affairs officer a week later in August. How did you as a couple decide that the Foreign Service was a career for him and for both of you? Well, Bonnie, like most life decisions, I find they are made by a combination of push and pull. This decision was easy. 
The pull was strong. The work seemed like the opportunity of a lifetime, right in line with Larry's career goals in journalism. It offered the grand sum of $8,000 a year starting salary, although in retrospect, we had little practical knowledge of what lay ahead. The push, well, that was also easy. By 1966, the Vietnam War was very unpopular. Anti-war sentiment, especially on college campuses like the University of Texas, was strong. Having an offer from the Foreign Service was an attractive and practical alternative. Importantly, it convinced the draft board to allow Larry a deferment. When he passed away in 2018, his college roommate mused, Instead of the United States getting Larry for two years in the Army, it got the two of you for 30 years of public service. A pretty good deal for Uncle Sam. It certainly was. What kind of preparation did you have before your first posting in El Salvador in the late 1960s? Were you briefed on the political and security situations? Your Spanish language must have been a real advantage. And were you working there? Preparation for that first posting included language classes for Larry as well as country-specific briefings. I was already fluent in Spanish, but left my job at the Washington Post to take advantage of a two-week training program, especially for spouses, introducing cross-cultural adaptation, life in a mission community, and other transition topics. Before the 1972 directive, all spouses were women since, although women could be Foreign Service officers, if they married, they had to resign their commissions. And since this was well before the days of same-sex couples and tandem couples, all officers were either men or single women. I'm happy to say those restrictions are long gone. The Foreign Service of today is very diverse. We knew from the outset the first assignment would be brief. 18 months only, but it was long enough to have our first child, our daughter Catherine, and become familiar with the environment of working overseas in an embassy community. Three official events seem worth mentioning as part of our initial education. President Lyndon Johnson paid a visit as part of a summit with Central American heads of state. We were excited and awed to meet our own president up close and personal. He would not be the only president we would meet during our career. As part of the cultural exchange program, we hosted the soon-to-be world-famous soprano Jessie Norman in our home for dinner. She was part of this cultural exchange program, and years later, when I heard her sing with the Washington National Opera, I reminisced. She came to my little house in San Salvador for dinner. And speaking of coming to dinner, as part of the same cultural exchange program, we hosted the embassy showing of a beautiful but at the time controversial movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Spencer Tracy, Katherine Hepburn, and Sidney Poitier. The movie deals with latent racism among wealthy liberals, a theme that in retrospect still seems timely. Such events were meant to expose American cultural life and spark discussion. Regarding employment, regulations did not permit me to work, but I was extremely busy and really felt I had a role to play. We made strong friendships in the embassy community that continue to this day. You then transferred to Bogota, Colombia from 1968 to 1971. What were the highlights and challenges of living in that environment? We enjoyed living in the high mountains of Colombia. It was safe at the time, and Larry's work as press officer was engaging. Also, there were several families with young children who organized a playgroup. 
It was in Bogota where I dusted off my teaching credentials and took a job at the Binational Center teaching English as a second language. I loved it so much, I thought I might follow that path forever. From there, you moved to Maracaibo, Venezuela, at a branch public affairs office, not the capital of the country, in 1971. How was life there? Bonnie, we got off to a good start, but shortly after arriving, our second child was born and needed more medical attention than was available in remote Maracaibo. I'm happy to report our son is fine, but in the context of this conversation about the Foreign Service, it is worth mentioning that plans can change on a dime. In subsequent years, separated assignments due to security, spouse employment, and other factors have become quite common. But at the time, Larry and I were committed to keeping our family together. So we had an unexpected six-year Washington tour until the medical division would give our son a clearance to go overseas. We lived in Reston, Virginia, where the kids started elementary school, and I taught preschool. Tell us about your children's education when you were abroad and how that worked out. How was their adaptation to foreign posts and to re-entry to the U.S. as third culture kids? Bonnie, both children adapted well uh, overseas, primarily due to their own resilience. After living in Reston, and with little or no Spanish language training, we enrolled them in the Colegio Americano in Mexico City, where they immediately started half-day instruction in English, half-day in Spanish. The playground was all Spanish-speaking, of course. They did well, played sports, and found friends. Between Mexico and Brazil, we returned to Reston for a semester while Larry and I studied Portuguese, and the kids went to public school in Fairfax County. They would both say this was their most difficult semester. This is the re-entry piece. Neither teachers nor students had much impetus to invest in students expected to leave so soon. We relied on our former neighbors and friends for social contacts and muddled through somehow. It was rough on the kids. They were American, yet they did not feel at home. The school picture improved dramatically when they enrolled in the Escola Americana uh, in Rio de Janeiro, a great educational institution with a college prep academic program and wonderful faculty, led at the time by one of the legends in the overseas school community, Headmaster Gilbert Brown. This school experience proved pivotal for both kids who still speak about the benefits of that period of their education. In general, overseas schools are accustomed to integrating new students and have smaller classes. Both kids participated actively in extracurricular activities from sports to drama. They quickly mastered Portuguese and maintained friendships with classmates even today. Catherine graduated in 1986. When we returned to Washington in 1987, our son David had two years remaining in high school and we enrolled him in St. Andrew's Episcopal School. After enjoying the benefits of more personalized education overseas, a small private school was a good fit. We sold our house in Reston and relocated to Bethesda, Maryland to be within walking distance of the school. With the 1972 directive impacting the role of Foreign Service spouses, how did you see things changing and did they impact you? Out with the old and in with the new. The 1972 directive on wives was abrupt in some ways, 
and gradual in others. I dare say no spouse was sorry not to be evaluated on her husband's performance report. However, as spouses began to shed the official cloak of welcoming committees and the notion of senior and junior wives' responsibilities to each other, we began to lose some of the formal structure holding the mission community together. It was a natural evolution to create the Family Liaison Office and the network of community liaison officer positions around the world. Needed or not, it was a heavy lift to convince the department to fund. This history was written by Leslie Dorman, Meta Beecroft, and other spouses who lobbied Congress and the department to create Flow, which opened in 1978. Your family also lived in Mexico City from 1978 to 1982. How was that tour? Did you have paid employment or do volunteer work? And if so, what were some of the things you learned by volunteering? Serving in Mexico for me was like going home. I had lived and studied there and as a Texan visited as a young person. I returned to teaching English as a second language at the Central Office of Reader's Digest for Latin America. But perhaps the most valuable lessons came from volunteering. I signed up for a course with the Junior League of Mexico called Volunteer Career Development, which outlined how to select volunteer work in line with your career goals and treat it like a paid job. Seek letters of reference and include unpaid work on your resume. The idea of volunteer work may not appeal to everyone, but it can provide leadership experience at a high level, which is difficult to obtain early in a regular career, and it can provide enormous satisfaction when serving a worthy cause. In your posting to Rio de Janeiro from 1982 to 87, you served as the CLO Community Liaison Officer. What were some of the main issues you encountered there? Being CLO was a great experience. Rio was a wonderful place to live and serve, but I still shudder to think I had to go to the admin office on a different floor of the consulate to use a computer. What a nightmare. Communications were so primitive. I had good support from management and the Consul General Alfonso Arenales, who took an interest in community well-being. The CLO job is diverse and offers many opportunities to sharpen organizational skills. You and your husband served in Athens from 1992 to 95. How was life there? Did you work? Actually, I did not work in Athens. Larry, as the public affairs officer, was a senior position and conflicts of interest were everywhere, including the Fulbright Commission, which tried to recruit me. But I was thrilled to be in Greece and host numerous visitors, travel the country and play tennis. I made many friends. I knew this would be our last overseas assignment. And so I did, however, have employment related goals to keep up training and facilitation skills honed while working at FSI in the early 90s, teach myself how to use a home computer, and write articles for publication at Flow and AAFSW. I figured this was a way to keep my name in front of the department should an employment opportunity arise. Also, I took a small contract with Diplomatic Security in Athens to design a post-security training for newcomers. And on behalf of Flow, I piloted an overseas employment workshop for spouses. So you moved back to Washington in 1995 and immediately started your position as the Spouse Employment Program Coordinator at the Flow Office at State. And you've lived in Washington since then. Yes, a friend saw the job advertised in the embassy newsletter and called me. This is the job for you, she said. I landed an interview and flew to Washington from Athens to do it in person, wanting to leave nothing to chance. 
there was, of course, no Zoom. Most Foreign Service families think that it is difficult to raise a family on the salary of the Foreign Service officer and that a second income is a necessity, not a luxury. What were some of the main initiatives that the Spouse Employment Office was starting back then? Bonnie, when I joined Flo, the director, Kendall Montgomery, and deputy, Gail Knowles, were already focused on figuring out how to pay benefits to spouses working in overseas mission employment. The opportunity to work on that initiative fell in my lap. We were successful in convincing the department to adopt the so-called limited non-career appointment to hire spouses. It afforded employee benefits, including retirement. And we sought ways to close the gap for certain spouse employees who, with prior work experience, needed to have their benefits included. We negotiated bilateral work agreements to facilitate work on the local economy in more countries, and we changed the policy to allow certain kinds of work at home in official government housing previously prohibited. In 2004, you joined the Office of Employee Relations in the Bureau of HR at the State Department and became the Division Chief for Work Life in 2009. What were the main goals of that office? Well, the Office of Employee Relations Work Life Division managed many programs, the leave and travel policy, workers' compensation, life and health insurance, student loan repayment, telework, and alternate work policy. We advocated for the child care centers and organized the popular annual Take Your Child to Work Day. In my last two years, I was collaborating with the Office of Medical Services to establish a domestic and overseas wellness program. These policies and programs touch all employees, foreign and civil service. How has employment for Foreign Service family members evolved since the flow first opened in 1978? What supports does the State Department offer for spousal employment? Please talk about programs to help family members find work overseas, employment inside and outside the mission, and separate maintenance allowances. Spousal employment is recognized as a critical component of stability for many Foreign Service families. And various programs and support offer ongoing training and support. It's possible now for a family member to receive a separate maintenance allowance, for example. What percentage of working spouses are employed by the embassy or government while overseas? And how many work on the local economy? If the latter, isn't it difficult to get hired when the employer knows that the spouse will only be in country for three or four years? Bonnie, the Family Liaison Office website has statistics which can be useful in planning prospective assignments. The latest stats from 2020 indicate that 41% of family members are employed overseas. Working inside the mission are 26% and 15% work on the local economy. That means that unemployed or not employed spouses equal 59%. The fact that over half are not employed speaks both to the difficulties of working overseas, credential issues, language barriers, transition concerns, but also, as in my own case, times when I was not seeking employment. What is the Global Employment Initiative, GEI? Initially, the idea was to hire an employment counselor in many posts, someone who knew the employment environment and could coach and advise spouses. 
It has evolved into a regional program, but still with the same goals, targeting companies that operate regionally to open employment to spouses. So many people have experienced telework during the pandemic, but years before that, you helped to develop the Domestic Employee Teleworking Overseas Program, DITO. How has that helped Foreign Service family members to maintain their employment while abroad? Bonnie, in 2014 and 15, it was like pulling teeth to convince bureau managers regarding the benefits of telework. But it turned out that those early adopters had an advantage when the pandemic hit. I was glad we had a policy in place. And now, reportedly, 100 family members are teleworking their domestic job overseas on those DITO agreements, as you mentioned. I never lost my desire to try and make things better for people. And I learned that policies can be changed when circumstances changed. You capped off your career with a well-deserved award as Champion of Career Enhancement for Eligible Family Members. After retiring in 2018 from your 28-year career with the State Department and even longer with your husband in foreign postings, you have taken on a completely new project during the past year of COVID. Can you describe the book you've just written? Well, thank you. Uh, My book, Death in Wartime China, A Daughter's Discovery, tells the story of my father, William H. Wallace, a bomber pilot with the Flying Tigers, and my recent trip to China to learn where he died. I hope to publish the book this year. In your long service with the Foreign Service, you have seen Foreign Service families evolve from the officer with his quote-unquote trailing spouse, which was always a wife, to full-fledged, quote, dual-career couples, unquote. If you were in charge of designing training for Foreign Service spouses, partners, and families to prepare them for Foreign Service life, what would your program look like? Well, actually, the Foreign Service Institute has excellent training programs. The Overseas Briefing Center maintains up-to-date information on every post for everyone preparing for overseas posting. People simply must take advantage of the support. Sometimes this means leaving your job a month early to take the classes. It's short-sighted, in my view, to forego valuable cross-cultural language and transition preparation offered at no cost for one more paycheck. Judy, any final thoughts, lessons learned, words of wisdom or advice for spouses whose partners are considering a career in the Foreign Service? What would be realistic expectations of a career in the Foreign Service for a family? Well, Bonnie, as you know, the Foreign Service is not just a job. It's a career and it's a lifestyle. More correctly, it's a life. You don't give up at the first hardship, the first disappointment, because wonderful things may be just around the corner. If your family includes children, try to bring them home every year if at all possible. It will help them establish a sense of place in the United States and give them an opportunity to feel more American. If you are a lifelong learner willing to expand your understanding of other cultures and people, there's no better way to serve your country than with the Foreign Service. And when people ask you that familiar question, what do you do? You can say you work overseas making friends for the United States. You can be the next generation to tell America's story abroad. Indeed. Judy, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for your service to Foreign Service families and for joining us today and providing us with insight about Foreign Service families over the past 55 years. 
Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of Foreign Service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at ADST.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time.